This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. It's Wednesday, December 14th, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Adam's Family Outcast Edition. I'm Isaac Butler, in for Stephen Metcalf. On today's show, we tackle Wednesday, the new Netflix goth psychic murder mystery TV show about the Adams Family daughter's high school years. And then, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is the new documentary from Oscar winner Laura Poitras. It follows the trailblazing artist Nan Golden as she attempts to hold the Sackler family accountable for the opioid crisis. We'll have our take. And finally, tis the season for... Spotify wrapped? What can a tally of our annual music listening choices tell us about ourselves? Stay tuned to find out. Joining me today and subbing for Dana Stevens is Slate's Dan Coyce. Dan, this is normally the time that I gently rib you about some of your recent foibles, but you actually have a new book coming out very soon. Could you tell us the title and a little bit about it? Uh, isn't that also my latest foible? It's called Vintage Contemporaries. Uh, it's a novel. It comes out in January. It's a comedy about broken friendships. You know, that is a foible, but I'm not going to rib you about it because I have read it and I think it's truly excellent and everyone should buy it. Today, in fact. Thanks. Uh, Also joining us is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Julia, when you were in high school, were you a fang, a scale, a siren, or a stoner? (laughs) Which one is like the do-good nerd? I don't think I was any of those. They don't have those. (laughs) You'd be in the town working the coffee shop. Yes, 100%. I'm like behind the barista counter. Uh, yeah, slinging brownies and wondering what's going on over there in Nevermore. All right. Shall we do a show? Let's do it. All right. Let's dive in. The Adams Family began as a series of single panel cartoons in The New Yorker about a macabre family of aristocrats who served as a bent mirror to the family values of mid-century America. Since then, they've become a remarkably durable piece of corporate IP, fueling a series of comic books, two beloved live action films, two less beloved animated films, and many, many TV shows. The latest of these is a new program for Netflix called Wednesday, initially directed by Tim Burton and starring Jenna Ortega as the titular pint-sized goth who tries to solve a series of murders and strange goings-on at a high school for magical outcasts. In this clip, she gets a tour of that high school called Nevermore. Leading the tour is Wednesday's new roommate, whose bubbly attitude is not very compatible with Wednesday's brooding demeanor. Let's take a listen. Nevermore was founded in 1791 to educate people like us. Outcasts, freaks, monsters... Fill in your favorite marginalized group here. You can save the sanitized sales pitch. I don't plan on staying here for long. Why not? This was my parents' idea. Oh, look. There's my mother smirking at me. They've been looking for any excuse to send me here. It's all a part of their nefarious yet completely obvious plan. What plan? To turn me into a version of themselves. Well, in that case, perhaps you can clear something up. Rumors been swirling around that you killed a kid at your old school and your parents pulled strings to get you off. Actually, it was two kids, but who's counting? 
Julia, I'll admit there was so much familiar here that I started writing down the various tropes and where I could remember them from. I mean, there's not only the Adams characters, but there's the magic school with four different major houses. Wednesday psychic powers <laughs> are basically the dead zone. It has the, you know, necessary small role for Christina Ritchie, who made the part of Wednesday famous. It's got a paranormal mystery format from Riverdale, the cave from Dark, the blood showers from Blade, the love triangle that every show needs. You know, do they find anything new in this material or is the remixing of the familiar satisfying enough for you? I think what feels new is Jenna Ortega's performance, which is very precise and pretty fun to watch. Um, And the show is... I I am not an Adams Family oeuvre completist, so I, I can't speak to all of the things that has been done with her character in the past. But essentially the show uses her guarded persona as the beginnings of an avenue for emotional exploration of like teen defensiveness, I think. Like I think they're, they, they, they use her kooky, spooky self um, as a way to explore how teens navigate high school. Now, have shows explored before how teens navigate high school? Yes, they have. <laughs> but um, I think there is something pretty uh, charming in how all of these elements are mixed and remixed. Agree, not totally fresh, but the the kind of tonal control and the level of the acting um, is, is pretty good. Uh, and it's fun to watch the various like teen hunks from the different groups and towns, you know, emerge with their chins and cheekbones and sort of seem randomly interested in her. <laughs> Just like, oh, yeah, that part. Um, yes, every young man desires her on site, right? I know. Uh, always what happens to the um, hostile outcasts of the class, <laughs> the, the most realistic part of it. Um, and I will also say that I don't know, again, enough about whether this is new, but she spends a lot of time talking to Thing, the the, the hand character Thing, uh, accompanies her to school and becomes her sort of like errand boy, helpmate, um, sparring partner. So there are like long scenes where she like has emotional arguments with the hand, um, which requires the hand to do a lot. And I'm curious whether you guys thought those work, those felt new to me as well. We had a fun feature in Slate about the hand actor behind Thing, um, whose job actually really seems to have been quite difficult, crouching about and um, being very expressive with his hands. Um, those scenes were fun, um, and I like the you know the various ways that hand finds to uh, convey information, whether by tapping or gesturing or a straight up flipping the bird when necessary. Um, and I think I agree with Julia generally that like the the ways that this plays with uh, these familiar tropes, the ways that it demonstrates America's unending f- um, ability to produce high cheekboned young men of uh, modest appeal <laughs> um, is totally <laughs> enjoyable. I would say the one place where I disagree with you is about Jenna Ortega, who I know people really love. Um, and who they clearly have built this entire series around. Like, I don't think this series exists if they don't have Jenna Ortega to agree to do it. But I do not find the character and her performance like an appealing way of thinking about teenage reticence. 
in a show that for the most part actually found interesting ways to three-dimensionalize cartoony ideas, she still seemed like the most cartoony thing, the most two-dimensional thing in the show to me. I feel like the show never really makes up its mind about how cartoony or realistic or logical or bizarre it wants to be. Because like, if it is a, just to give an example, like if it's a paranormal high school filled with magic people, the, the everyone seems very surprised when anything weird or paranormal happens. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the fact that Wednesday, you know, there's a, there's a whole thing in the early episodes where Wednesday witnesses a murder that may or may not have happened and everyone just seems like very confused about that when people are casting magic spells all over the place and there are vampires and werewolves um and and surely people are murdered in the woods every day yeah exactly and and just on us on a similar thing it's like wednesday is sort of good at at everything and we're not sure whether that's it's never clear to me how exceptional within the universe of the show that's supposed to be that she can like write a novel and play the cello and do all these you know other things whereas in the in the you know like the the live action films which i i loved very much as a kid when i saw them you know like the adams family are a self-contained zone of weirdness and then everything around them is this kind of heightened normality and by by switching it up in this way, like I, I just, I had a lot of questions about what the world was and how the world works. And I think that's sort of my version of what you're talking about with her performance. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm giving the show credit for where it seems like it's going mm-hmm. because they don't present her in the first several episodes as um, sprung from the skull of Morticia, like just a little precocious weirdo who's never going to soften. Like she, clearly her standoffishness and um, hostility uh, there there's plenty of seeds planted that those are defense mechanisms and I don't know. She's, she seems like she's going to warm up into a more human person. Now, maybe that's at odds with what the potential of the Adams family IP is. And that's a, really an interesting point you raise Isaac Um but I, I just I, I did find her kind of off-putting, but in a compelling way that it seems like the show wants to reckon with and untangle over time rather than like as a constant that you just have to accept if you want to watch it. So I my teen, um, one of my teens has watched and really enjoyed the show. She watched it, of course, long before I did and couldn't believe how late to the game I was. Um, but she found, you know, she is not particularly familiar with the Adams family properties. She, you know, she didn't get the joke about the two snaps and she didn't get the joke about being spooky and kooky. Um, but she did like Wednesday who she read essentially as just like gothy. Um, and she found a lot of the other teenagers in the show somewhat cringy. And she couldn't stop telling me about how, oh, whenever they make shows in high schools now, they have to pretend like they understand Gen Z. So they always have a character who's like, oh, you need to get on TikTok. And they always have to have a character who's like, oh, I have two moms. And they're just trying to be like, oh, we get Gen Z. We see you. Um, And it was fun hearing from her the experience of being very lightly pandered to the way that I was very lightly pandered to once upon a time and rejected it yet still uh, consumed it avidly. And 
And maybe it's that that I find most intriguing about the show that that Hollywood will always find a way to both annoy and compel that specific audience with this specific kind of story. Uh, and, and it's fun to imagine what this is going to look like in a hundred or 200 or 500 years. And, and was that show 90210 for you, Dan? That show was Buffy, of course. Oh, Buffy. Yeah, duh. Of course. Yes, right. This is Buffy, right? This is a, I mean, I would say it's not as good. I, I, I'll admit, I actually, um, when we, when I started watching this, I got 20 minutes through the pilot and I shut it off and was like, Oh no, I have to watch so much more of this to be able to talk about it on GabFest. And I watched, you know, I wound up watching four episodes um, a la the Clockwork Orange, you know, eyes peeled thing. Um, I feel like this is a great show for like a 12 year old. The thing that, or a a, a teenager for exactly those reasons that you're talking about. But unlike with Buffy or whatever, like I, I just don't understand why adults are watching it and talking about it so much in a way that makes me feel ancient and grumpy <laughs> say more what 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 bothered you about it well because it's it is just a rehash of a bunch of familiar stuff in service of expanding corporate ip and making sure that netflix has another show for people to watch when stranger things goes off the air like i just feel like i can see the corporate strategy behind it so visibly and it's so cynical about all of that stuff that I have trouble appreciating anything that's going on on camera. It's interesting to me to hear your objections raised in the form of like an anti like corporate cynicism argument. When in fact, it seems like what you really don't like about it is that it's for teens. Like it's, it is made for teens. It's for teens. That is the point of the show. And so you don't, it annoys you that adults are talking about it when it's not a product for them, but like, that's not, you know, teens are always going to watch cynically made corporate crap. I mean, right. you know, they, they always have, Shouldn't they always we will. Adults be better than that. No, yes. Isaac, we're not better than that. Uh, but surely, we? surely the lessons of the last 20 years have not have taught us that adults are not better than that. <laughs> I mean, I guess I just have a more generous place in my heart for the 90210 and the Buffy and the gossip girl and the, whatever your teen drama of choice are. I would say my two faves are, probably Buffy, which I saw in my very early 20s, and Veronica Mars, which I watched last year. So I don't think you have to be a teen to love a good teen soap, right? Um, but But the glory of the teen soap is that it's opera, right? That everybody's having the emotions for the first time, and they don't understand them, and they're uh, bewildered by them, and they're not jaded. So the kind of distancedness and jadedness of of this um, preternaturally precocious and in control young woman is unusual. It's like a little bit irritating. It's like a piece of gravel in your grape nuts. Like it doesn't quite feel right. Um, and the uncanniness of it, I don't know, it seemed interesting. Like I, I, I watched it and thought, huh, I'm not going to finish this, but it seems like it's fine for it to exist rather than feeling like this is a cynical corporate play. I was like, to each generation their own, and perhaps this is somebody's, you know? <laughs> that, um, make, that makes total sense. I mean, my feeling, I guess, is just like, I, I feel like Veronica Mars and Buffy and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth are just better made, I, I guess, or just better and more interesting and more personal to their creators than this one. But, but how? But so what? So what? what makes a teen soap a worthy successor? And what makes one, uh, you know, hollow well, why is Buffy, chilling? which was a grab onto some former IP, different than this, a grab onto some former IP? 
Well, I mean, among other things, the jokes were actually funny. Uh, you know, I mean, like, I just think just on a simple craft level, you know, it was just like a better made thing that felt like, to some extent, the personal work of its creator, you know, um, and Veronica Mars's kind of PI in high school thing. I mean, those have like a very idiosyncratic sensibility in a way that I don't think Wednesday does because its parts are all borrowed from somewhere else. It's like going to Hot Topic, you know, like it just like it just has that that feel to me of mixing and matching things that have been successful, you know, everywhere else, instead of trying to come up with something that feels personal and original to the creator's own experience. Look, as long as the show gets the cramps into the top 10, that's all I care about. If they can do with the cramps, what <laughs> stranger things did for Kate Bush, the show's job will be done. When the sun goes down and the moon comes up, You know what? That is a very good point. And listeners, if you are feeling less jaded and cynical than me, perhaps you will like Wednesday, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we do the business. And this week, we have two items on the agenda. First up, this is your final reminder about the upcoming Culture Gab Fest listener call-in episode. If you're not familiar, this is an annual tradition where listeners submit a bunch of questions to Julia, Dana, and Steve. Questions about culture, about their lives outside the podcast, about their opinions, their hopes, their dreams, and then the hosts answer their favorite questions during a special episode. So if there's anything you've been dying to ask the regular crew, give them a call and leave a message at 908-977-6807. Again, that number is 908-977-6807. Or you can email your question to culturefest at slate.com. The deadline for questions is tomorrow morning. So please Get them in as soon as you can. Thank you. Our second item of business is to tell you about today's Slot Plus segment. And uh, to do that is the lovely and talented Julia Turner. Okay, so last week, Dana Stevens proposed that it was my advocacy for the book Need a House, Call Miss Mouse, the uh, beloved by me at least children's picture book about a fictional mouse architect who makes fascinatingly different homes that are beautifully illustrated in section view for her many different animal friends, that it was my advocacy of this book that caused it to be reissued because I endorsed the fact that it was being reissued last week. Well, since that suggestion, 
I have received correspondence which reveals the answer to whether or not the Culture Gab Fest is responsible for the return of Ms. Mouse in order to learn whether we and the implied power of this massive culturally influential listening audience can notch this achievement as our own, you will have to listen to this late plus segment. So become a member uh, in order to learn the answer and hear more, as you've always wanted, about Ms. Mouse. Well, Julia, if I were a Slate Plus member, I would be so excited to listen to that after the credits. And if I were not, I'd be kicking myself that I hadn't signed up. And I would go sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content. Not only the Slot Plus segment we just discussed, but members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and Political Gab Fest, bonus segments on my own show, Working, and members get unlimited access to all the great writers on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important to us, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, moving on. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is the new documentary from Oscar winner Laura Poitras. It follows the artist Nan Golden and her protest organization Prescription Action Intervention Now, or PAIN, as they try to get the art world to stop taking money from the Sackler family and remove the family's name off of their buildings and galleries. The Sacklers, of course, are the family that own Purdue Pharma, manufacturers of OxyContin, and they bear an outsized responsibility for the opioid epidemic. In this clip, Golden reads from an art forum article she she wrote about the museum world's complicity in the opioid epidemic. My relationship to OxyContin began several years ago in Berlin. It was originally prescribed for surgery. Though I took it as directed, I got addicted overnight. In the beginning, 40 milligrams was too strong, but as my habit grew, there was never enough. I went from three pills a day, as prescribed, to 18. The drug, like all drugs, lost its effect, so I picked up the straw. My life revolved entirely around getting and using Oxy. Counting and recounting, crushing and snorting, was my full-time job. When I got out of treatment, I learned that the Sackler family whose name I knew from museums and galleries, were responsible for the epidemic. Dan, Golden's activism is not the only subject of this film. It is also a biographical portrait of her trailblazing life and career and the downtown art scene in New York in the 70s and 80s. That is a lot to pack into one movie that's under two hours long. Do you think the film pulls off this balancing act? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'd say what makes the film work for me is the conversations that, that's happening between those sections all the time, between the biographical portrait and the you know fly on the wall of her present day activism. Uh, Poitras, I think throughout, is drawing these subtle connections between, you know, for example, the the way Golden's parents treated her sister who uh, died of suicide when uh, Golden was young um, after you know being committed to several institutions by her parents and and the way that society has treated victims 
of the opioid epidemic, and she's Poitras traces these lines between, you know, that uh, the Witnesses show in 1989, a famous uh, show of AIDS-related art that Golden uh, curated and then was, was which was defunded by the NEA, and then her later activism, the activism of of pretending to die on the floor of the Temple of Danjur in in protest of the Sacklers, the naming of a wing of the Met after the Sacklers. And so watching this woman who admits that, you know, she was pathologically shy as a child, find her voice over and over in different kinds of ways through art and through friendship and through uh, community and through activism is really quite moving and, and does make these two disparate threads feel really unified. And in fact, you know, I found myself really inspired, honestly, that this movie takes Golden's work as seriously as it takes her activism, because there's a really easy version of this movie, a very inspiring, probably Oscar winning movie that is just about the activism. It would be really good. It would, you know, it would have more scenes of meetings between all the people in her organization pain. It would have lots more scenes of golden, like nodding while people told their stories. It would have more of the planning and the run up to the protests. Um, and it would, you know, may mention in passing, like in the first 10 minutes, oh, can you believe it? This person is a famous photographer. But instead, um, you know, I'm really grateful that Poitras digs as deep into Golden's work as she does, and that long stretches of the movie are basically Nan Golden slideshows. They're just music, images, and narration from Golden, and we really get to experience the work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the slideshow motif that runs throughout is is not just there because Golden's, you know, uh, famous work, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, was a sort of ongoing slideshow project. It's almost like a formal... Um, metaphor of the movie itself right that it's telling it's showing you these frames these different ways to frame her and letting them all all speak together what did you make of it julia it's so funny that you say dan that it could have been a movie just about the activism i actually think the opposite and that it could and not should not should i i really did enjoy this movie but the activism pieces of it seem so much um kind of less rich and less uh, methodically laid out than you'd want to, to make a strong case about what the Sackler responsibility for the epidemic is and what it means to take their names off art galleries and whether that's even a valuable thing to do. Like it just sort of assumes that like, yep, they're responsible and getting their names off these art galleries sure matters a ton. Like the the movie just kind of stipulates that in a way that I don't, uh, that feels a little flimsy to me. Whereas everything about her childhood, her art, her images, which are stunning. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not a documentary filmmaker, but uh, if I ever try, I will try to have my subject be someone who makes incredibly arresting images and lets me just use them all over my film. Yeah. <laughs> like, one, it's just, one easy trick. Yeah, it's like so clever and gorgeous. And um, and I think a really powerful way to encounter her work and the kind of work she's making. I'm sure it wouldn't work for for every artist. But uh, I, f- I felt that the Sackler piece was... Um, most interesting as a portrait of someone uh, 
um, learning to speak truth. And I think what makes the film succeed is that it understands that. And maybe that's why it doesn't um, overplay the kind of origins or logic of the protests. But I think the the one kind of weak link in the film is that it get you know, it has all this footage of the protests. It's on the ground during the protests. I think what it's most emotionally curious about is, uh, you know, how Nan Golden learned to be and to speak, right? She says toward the end that her family wanted to deny the truth of the world and she wants to speak the truth of the world and the truth of the world as she sees it. Um, it involves getting the Sackler names off these galleries, which to be clear, it seems like a fine thing to do. I just don't think the movie like does the work to explain or establish that it matters in any profound way. Um, so I, I actually felt like the activist part was sort of the weaker part um, when compared to this, just this portrait. I mean, essentially it's a documentary as a retrospective um, that's 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 as curious about the artist as the art. But I loved, I mean, it's it's one of the most beautiful documentaries I've seen in years. It's just stunning to look at. And not only, not only because of Golden's images, the way that Poitras films oh, just mundane houses, somehow she's amazing at filming like weather. All of the days that you see outdoors seem, seem very specific. You can like see and feel the temperature and atmosphere, which is kind of hard to do on film. So it, 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 she's not, she's doing really remarkable things craft wise with the material, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, but that, I'm curious what you thought. Well, that, that point you make about the retrospective, I loved the movie, I, I'll say. And, and that point you make about the retrospective is, I think, an important one. Cause, you know, I've seen quite a bit of Nan Golden's photographs in the past, but it's always like one photograph in a show about something else. Uh, I've never actually seen a retrospective of her work and seeing it all together, not all of it, obviously she shot, she's probably shot six bajillion photos over the course of her life, but, but seeing a lot of it at once really drove home its power and influence and specialness, you know, um, uh, how important and groundbreaking and idiosyncratic and great it is and how it, and also I kept thinking about the, how the aesthetic it created has been repurposed in advertising, you know, so often, whether it's heroin chic or Terry Richardson or whatever, but like to get this, like, um, you know, really concentrated dose of the real thing. I, I found really powerful to me. And maybe it's because, you know, my wife read, uh, Patrick Redden Keefe's empire of pain a few months ago. And so I've been hearing lots about the Sacklers, uh, uh, you know, in our house over the past few months. Um, I, I hadn't even noticed that it doesn't really go that, that deep on those kind of establishing points to me. What I found powerful about the activism part is that it's a portrait of successful or organizing and activism that, you know, sets out with a clear goal, figures out a tactical way to achieve it, and it actually works. Um, and I just found that aspect of that story incredibly inspiring in this current moment where I think we often sit around thinking that nothing we do will ever matter. Especially in the context of this particular battle in which almost every, in almost every other measurable way, um, there, there wasn't success. We're still losing hundreds of thousands of people yes. to opioids every year. The people responsible did not really suffer in any measurable way, except for that one thing that they really prized, which was their connection to the art world and the way that it gave them a kind of legitimacy has in fact been stripped from them 
specifically by these activists? Well, in part by these activists. I mean, I think part of my response to it, it also comes from the fact that I read Empire of Pain myself and think it's one of the best books of the last 10 years. And part of what makes it so good and what makes Keith so good as a journalist is the absolute rigor and methodical nature of his development of what the the type of culpability the Sacklers have is and the clarity with which he lays out, you know, how their money and our judicial system intersect to let them and their fortune off the hook uh, and what the art means to them and why, you know, getting their names off of things is valuable. And also the broader context of kind of reporting from Keith and other, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not just the pill bottles in the Temple of Dender that that result in the name. So it, it uh, at knowing a, a decent amount about the broader picture, um, I just you know the the the. I don't think the movie makes the case. It's not trying to make the case, right. but like what what the book does very well is show, you know, like lots of people make drugs that can be abused and could be responsible for things and could could you know could get out of control like wildfire and the and the mo- the book is very precise about the marketing tactics what they knew when they knew it how they knew it and um and and the film just kind of like assumes oh like big rich guys get names off gallery in ways that if I were coming fresh to this I think I would be like what well, well what the film does is it, it I mean it Poitras does a pretty canny thing which worked particularly well on me, but I also think works on a lot of people, which is that she essentially allows the film to sort of gloss over that stuff by putting the dashing character of Patrick Redden Keefe in it, um, essentially bestowing upon it the sort of grace of, of, you know, I did all this reporting, as you may or may not know, but as I certainly know, I teased all this stuff out at great length and, and have made this case by agreeing to appear in this film and, in fact, by speaking well of Nan Golden and her quest, I'm essentially bestowing upon upon her and on the film sort of my approval of, okay, you, got, you, guys, are, you guys are cool. It works. It works. And the movie is good. I don't mean to sound overly critical of it. Like, it's, it's just one of the more beautiful things I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it, on a tonal level, it, like, over plays the activism to me because it's so much less interesting than the psychology of her art and the iconoclasm of her life, which is, I mean, you know, obviously we've been talking about the, the, the Sacklers, which is kind of the, the hook of the movie, but you know, like her life is really fascinating and she is so open about it throughout, you know, there's a, there's a part where she's talking about her experience with sex work and she says something like, I've never talked about this before, but I just, I have to be honest now, you know, and the movie really has that feel. I'm not saying it's, it, it's not a confessional. It's not exactly a, a hagiography. I mean, it's like a really honest, complicated portrait of well, it's a Nan of, Golden photograph is what it is. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. So the film is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It is in theaters now. And I think we've got three yes votes for your seeing it of various intensity. Uh, check it out. Moving on. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, 
offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. So if you spent any time on social media towards the end of the year, you've no doubt been seeing people posting their annual Spotify-wrapped graphics and statistics. You may have even done it yourself, looking up your annual listening habits and discovering that you are, say, in the top 1% of Barry Manilow fans on Earth. This year, they've added personality types to the rap, so you can know whether you're a connoisseur with tastes the public can get behind, or a replayer who likes comfort listens, or perhaps a half druid with a plus two wand of entanglement. Dan, Julia, let's talk first about what we learned from our Spotify rap. The algorithm told me that I'm an adventurer who seeks out new songs and genres, and maybe somewhat embarrassingly enough, I am also apparently in the top 4% of fish listeners on Earth. <laughs> what, what about y'all? Uh, I learned that my morning started with Mellow Chill Love. I seized the day with chill love light, and my evening ended with friendly fun soft. Oh, interesting. My day starts with angst. <laughs> Just to get yourself going in the morning. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know that, but apparently it starts with angst. What about you, Julia? Uh, my favorite uh, thing, I started with amped euphoric chipper, uh, but then I went on to confident, bold, nervous, <laughs> which what? <laughs> And then I ended the night with a quiet, relaxing, sentimental. Just going into the day confident, bold, and nervous. <laughs> well, I, all that after all that amped euphoria, I have to come down somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also enjoy where they kind of like tried to turn it into a Myers Briggs thing, and they said I was a, I was the specialist. I'm selective with the music and artists I listen to, but I've got lots of love to go around. Once you decide you like an artist, you're all in. This is probably from the like one day I played a Kim Petras song over right. and over again <laughs> right. for 40 hours. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh, you're an FNVU. Oh, I'm an ENVU. That's interesting. Now I know why we're friends. I'm an inf J. <laughs> exactly. I actually have no idea what any of that means. Uh, um, Julia, now, are you still at the It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything except for that the marketing team at Spotify has contrived to make us talk about Spotify, and here we are. <laughs> I know. I know. We're, we're just a tool in their complicated game. I, I do have to ask, Julia, you know, since you have a, a, a baby, a, a toddler, I guess, at this point, um, is your Spotify uh, uh, recommendations and everything totally warped by the music you play for your child? No, my Spotify is totally warped by Steve and Dana. It's all like pop music oh. mixed with like medieval drone like motets that Dana recommended. <laughs> <laughs> My Spotify 
top 100 list is like bop 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 incredible <laughs> it's an unlistenable playlist because <laughs> it's got all these dana drones and i don't yeah we don't play kids music for my kids we've just decided to pretend it doesn't exist um, uh, i like our, that i uh, like that iris is at the age where she can insist on it and so my number two most listened to song is a song from the soundtrack to adventure time i'm so glad that i woke I think that might be the angsty song, actually. I don't know. Um, You know, one thing that's been really fascinating to me about this is I personally still have my music library on my phone and computer and iTunes. So Spotify gives me an accurate picture of the way I use Spotify. For example, I listen to a lot more Yola Tango than I do Fish, but I don't own any live Fish bootlegs, so I use Spotify to listen to their concerts. But there was one Mm. thing that it absolutely nailed, which is that I totally fell in love with Alice Coltrane's Journey into Such a Donata this year, and I listened to it like fucking all the time once I heard it for the first time. But um, a lot of the rest of it was just like, oh, yeah, I listen to that for writing music. And so I just, yeah, I, I know exactly where that idea has come from. Did it feel like an accurate portrait to the two of you of yourselves? Certainly in the sense that it, you know, it nailed my five favorite artists, basically, right down right down the list. Um, and what, what top uh, percent of Spoon listeners are you in, Dan? I am in the top 0.005% of Spoon listeners. Thank you very much. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> But also in that, as years did, Isaac, it also reflected a lot of the specific uses I put Spotify to, right? There's the car listening and there's the around the house listening and there's the uh, mellow, chill, love morning listening. But there's also the writing listening, which is, you know, which is a specific playlist. There's the plain listening, which is a specific playlist. And so, you know, in that respect, I like that the that the wrapped reflects the different kinds of listening experiences I value, but then of course throws them all together into one totally unlistenable playlist that does not at all represent what I would listen to at any given time in the way that Julia's bop bop playlist does not re- represent her at all. I like the idea that at some point they're going to be like, your morning started with bop bop mer, whereas <laughs> I mean, your lunch was more like scabadoo bop dal. <laughs> uh, well, what? I mean, I think that's part of it getting smarter is having the day parts, right? Because that's where it's starting to recognize the difference between the bop and the murr. But I mean, the question I have for you guys, the thing that seems most interesting to me about Spotify this year or wrapped this year is that it's a marketing technique that works. It's a real innovation of Spotify's that uses its collection of your personal data to flatter your ego and self-interest in the same way that like a horoscope would or a Myers-Briggs test and to reflect you back to yourself, your main subject of your own fascination, unless you're truly a higher power who only listens to the medieval drone music. Um, And, you know, other folks are imitating it, right? The Washington Post sent out an end of year marketing email that said you were in the 0.05% of, um, you know, style section readers, um, 
you know, the LA Times has an annual recap for subscribers, you know, in a, in a world of streaming and subscription based businesses, we all have relationships with companies that track what we do on their platforms, and then can try to reflect that information back to us in marketing that is, you know, charming, hopefully, charmingly ego stroking rather than um, surveillance creepy. (laughs) But like, I'm wondering how much longer this is going to work on us all as more and more outlets kind of Spotify wrapped their marketing message. Have you guys started to notice this, this mode of uh, engagement? Yeah, I have often found it kind of creepy. This is actually the first time I ever looked at my Spotify rap was for this segment. It's not because I'm some like bold resistor of the machine or something. It's just because it it always just struck me as like, there's just something a little unseemly and I've given them all this data and now they're going to construct a portrait of me and show it to me. There's just something about it that weirds me out. Maybe I like to flatter myself as more of an individual than I actually am or something. But but I, I, I find it, a little off-putting to be reminded of how much of our own information we are trading to Silicon Valley every day in exchange for convenience. That's that's creepy to me. And so I find it refreshingly transparent that at least one company is straight up telling us, Oh yeah, we know everything about you and we're going to tell it back to you in a way that flatters you, but, but also reveals that in fact, we know an insane amount of information about you. Like, is is this not what every single company we interact with is doing in you know in their server farms behind the scenes, uh, compiling this information, selling it to others, and never telling us about it? Uh, at least Spotify is like delivering it to us on a platter. That's a good point. I, I can't oh wait God. for, for Uber wrapped when it's like, here are the street corners you visited the most. <laughs> right. <laughs> here here are the shady drug houses you yeah, yeah, Ubered yeah. to the You're most times. You're a late night drug deal aficionado. <laughs> Uh, I was intrigued that um, the other. I, I was intrigued watching other independent app developers um, find ways to try to sort of preempt Spotify Wrapped. There was a very fun app that launched just or that achieved escape velocity and virality just a couple days before all the Spotify Wrapped's landed, which was called Festify. Did you guys see this? Where it uh, it was a little app that would. If you, of course, granted it permission to access your Spotify history, uh, it would then create a little a fake festival poster for like Coise Fest 2022, where, of course, the headliners are Spoon, R.E.M. and Gillian Welch. Um, but then then below them, they, in the smaller, the progressively smaller fonts, it shows all your favorite artists. And you can imagine this dream festival uh, in one shareable JPEG and watching other people sort of seize on the notion, not only with their own products like, you know, the LA Times or the Washington Post or soon Instacart and everyone else, but also the independent sort of whimsical users who found ways to leverage that data into something fun, though I'm sure eventually nefarious. I also found that enjoyable. And in fact, maybe more enjoyable than the Spotify wrapped because it felt less, um, less baloney ish. It wasn't about like trying to assign me a bullshit personality characteristic. It was just straight up telling me, here's your 30 favorite artists. Thank you very much. 
uh, I did not use it, but I saw that take over Twitter for like two weeks. Uh, and I just assumed it was a Spotify wrapped feature. <laughs> In fact, when I went to my Spotify wrapped, I was like, hey, where's that? Where's that? Where's uh, my festival? festival where's my festival lineup, you assholes? It was I, actually seeing the festival things that made me go to update the spotify app so that the wrapped would be in there because sometimes it isn't unless you do and then it wasn't in there and i was like oh i guess some it's some other person's independent project and then i couldn't find it and then i forgot about it and also i'm not proud to admit this but i'm more comfortable letting spotify have my data than giving access to my thing and my you know to a random third party act that's like somebody's fun project for december 2022 and then like where are they putting all that I don't know. I, 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 probably the lesson of the Dan Golden film is that I should not trust the major corporation uh, with, you know, caring for my best interests. But I do think some of the stories coming out of Twitter now uh, as its workforce devolves is like, no, big companies do generally put a lot of resources into thinking about what they do with your data. They might not always make the decisions you respect, whereas like random Instagram art project is maybe not what you want to plug your passwords into. Um, but then, you know, but then where does that leave you? Trusting, you know. <laughs> Don't trust anybody so. is the answer here. And that's what fish would tell you if you could ask them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Be like, hey, I, I'm one of your You know, the monks, the 15th century monks agreed about that, I think. <laughs> yes, they sang their group. Actually, if you translate those chants, they're singing, uh, Don't Trust Anyone. Except for Christ. Don't give your password to Spotify. Don't give your password. <laughs> Only give your password to Christ. That's correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it's also interesting because obviously, as you said, Julia, this is a marketing thing, right? This is a way of telling you like a horoscope, a flattering thing about yourself to get you to use the product or to remember that the product is there or to like the product more, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Um, is there going to be diminishing returns with that? What, what, what do we think is going to happen? Is this the last year that we're going to do a Spotify rap segment? <laughs> I mean, I it's like good marketing. I mean, respect, respect to good marketing, yeah. you know? Like we're all going to get marketed to all the time. And I, I think... I kind of buy your argument, Dan, that it's it's transparent and it's it controls for tone. I mean, there is a certain kind of like peppy colloquialism in marketing speak these days. Like the brands have figured out that they shouldn't sound like our, um, you know, that for a long time they sounded like our voice of God grandpa, like when you need help, come to our insurance company. And then the, for a while in like the aughts and teens, they were like your raspy, sardonic friend. Like when you can't get enough of, hey, you know, like kind of kind of that. And now they're kind of just this like peppy internet pal, you know, they're kind of like, we love your, they're, they're sort of like a low key perkiness. Now I sound like I'm describing one of the Spotify day parts, but um, that will all tire and wane over time but i think we've got like a few more years of other outlets imitating this before we get sick of it and somebody has to invent something totally new spoken like someone who appreciates newness variety and uniqueness <laughs> an adventure it's true uh, well, listeners, what did you learn about yourself from the algorithm this year? When we stare into the digital void, does it stare back into us? Write us with your thoughts. Moving on. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, now is the time in the show when we give you our endorsements. Dan Coyce, what have you got? I'm endorsing a uh, delightful book. Uh, that came out this year called What Artists Wear. It's by uh, a critic named Charlie Porter. Uh, And it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a compendium of meditations and photographs uh, about the clothing that visual artists wear. Um, and, uh, And it dwells quite interestingly on the mixture of utilitarianism and image consciousness that those clothes represent. So like Eve Klein's tailored suits or... Yayoi Kusama's Crocs or Basquiat's uh, paint-covered, paint-splattered Comme des Garçons sport coats. Um, It is full of wonderful photos and artwork. Uh, It's full of clever connections. And it really reminded me when I was reading it um, in a way that, that the Nan Golden documentary also reminded me that art is work and it demands respect as a result of that. And that the work that artists do means something, but also it reminds you that artists are often total delightful weirdos. uh, And I appreciated that as well. Is there an artist's look that you would steal if you could get away with it? Um, Frida Kahlo, honestly, when she got into her business wear, (laughs) she looked great. Nice. I could not pull off those suits. I don't have the slimness for it, but uh, but if I could, wow. I'm having an incredible image in my head right now. Uh, <laughs> Julia Turner, what are you endorsing this week? Well, somehow we made it through the Spotify segment without me uh, announcing the song that I liked best in 2022. And it's actually a song I considered mentioning on our Summer Strut playlist, but then I realized I'd learned it from like an LA Times list and it was not an official Strut submission. And then I didn't end up talking about it because... Honestly, I'm a little bit embarrassed because it's basically a song about like having breasts and really enjoying having breasts. It's a song called My Coconuts by Kim Petras. And it's very, very funny and very, very peppy, euphoric, amped, confident, bold, nervous or whatever. Kim Petras is a pop singer who we have name-checked on Summer Strut multiple times. Um, really, really great uh, discography. Um, and this is a newer track. 
Uh, Petrus is a trans artist uh, assigned male at birth. Um, so I think the valence of Kim Petrus singing about really enjoying having breasts adds a little bit of complication to what the song would be if it were, um, you know, sung by someone else. It's not just but my humps. It's it's it has actually a lot energetically in common with my humps. <laughs> which is not something I ever thought I would say in an endorsement segment. I can't, I can't explain it, but I feel like if we're going to be revealing ourselves and tastes, what Spotify revealed to me is that I really, really enjoyed this kind of ludicrous song. And I just, you know, trust and respect our listeners enough that I got to share that with you. So like Nan Golden, you have to be honest. I got to be honest. I can't lie. I got to speak truth to power. Um, mm-hmm. The power is the Culture Fest listenership, and the truth is, I really like the song "My Coconuts" by Kim Petras, and it's very amusing. And uh, if it sounds like it might be your cup of tea, check it out. Amazing! That sounds great. Well, so for me, I was trying to think about what kind of novel one might want to read on, you know, the holiday vacation, which is to say something kind of fun, something kind of comforting, something kind of smart. And uh, I arrived at a novel that I think. If you were the type of person who like liked Terry Pratchett or quoted Monty Python at your friends in high school or whatever, you really owe it to yourself to read Connie Willis's wonderful novel, To Say Nothing of the Dog. It is a time travel comedy farce written in the 1990s in which a 21st century historian goes back to the Victorian era in search of a lost vase and winds up setting off a chain of events that might end in the Nazis winning World War II and then has to try to undo all of them. It is incredibly funny. It is chock-a-block with references to Jeeves and Wooster to Hercule Poirot, to the Moonstone, to Sherlock Holmes. Uh, The Victorian era gets satirized brilliantly. It's just a a soup-to-nuts delight. The audiobook is great. I just think if you're looking to have a really fun week of reading on your hands uh, while you avoid your family, to say nothing of the dog is uh, a really good bet. That's very appealing because if a wrapped creep had existed in 1987, my phone would have told me you're in the top 005% of Monty Python quoters. So I'll probably have to read this book. I, I think you're going to dig it. I think you're going to have a good time as part of your like uh, resurgent sci-fi journey. I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, the clues that she drops about the 21st century are also really delightful. She almost gets the year right of the pandemic. Um, so anyway, it's, a, it's really fun. Uh, just pure pleasure reading. Really loved it. Dan, thank you so much for uh, guesting for Dana on the show this week. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about these cool things. And Julia, thank you so much uh, for everything you do right here on the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Thank you, Isaac. Thanks for being our Steve. Hey, it was a pleasure. I got to work hard to uh, be in the top 1% of SFOPs on Slate Culture Gab Fest. (laughs) All right. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Send us suggestions for topics. Argue with us. Whatever you want. Our intro music is by the composer Nick Brittell. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. I am Isaac Butler for Dan Coyce and Julia Turner. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon. This episode is presented by Best Buy. 
So it's official. We're now in the midst of the holiday shopping season. I feel like after Thanksgiving is over, we're allowed to say that. I really don't like hearing Christmas carols or seeing Santa in people's yards until Thanksgiving afternoon. And after that, it's all part of the spirit. That also means it's time to start thinking about getting gifts for our friends, our family and loved ones, and thinking about gifts that we might want to receive. Uh, Steve, I have a very general question for you about gift giving. How does your family approach presents during the holiday season? And uh, do you have any traditions related to gift giving that come up every year? So it's funny. I grew up in a family where it was a very, I, I only realized later it was a very odd philosophy of gift giving, which is that at Thanksgiving with my, my extended family, my mother and my aunt would sort of trade long lists, you know, derived directly from the testimonials of the children and others about what to get. So there was like sort of asking for XYZ and receiving XYZ and not, I mean, there was, believe me, nothing lavish about any of that. So it wasn't like you asked for a pony, you got a pony. It wasn't that. It was like you kind of knew to ask for like a pair of socks, a book and a, something else, right? Like, and so it was, it was very weirdly automated and sort of surprise and thoughtfulness, I guess, was, was downplayed. And so with, as with all of my nuclear family creation and parenting, I've massively overcompensated to the other extreme now. And so it's kind of this winging it free-for-all where um, you make up for a total lack of forethought and planning with like thoughtfulness and deep feeling <laughs> and kind of hit and miss, but the hits are amazing. <laughs> and the misses <laughs> live on in family lore practically forever. But um, I would say that that is the if it could be dignified with the word philosophy, I'd be impressed by that philosopher and want to want to read her collected works. But let's call it a philosophy of gift giving. But it results in a lot of joy and amusement and in the moment, like spontaneous expressions of affection. So I I think it works. There's also, by the way, my kids saying I want a friggin' pony, daddy, and I go and buy them the friggin' pony. <laughs> so. <laughs> What about you, Dana? I'm curious. I mean, I guess it is kind of chaos reigns. <laughs> usually my daughter, who is an only child, gets one big gift, and it's usually mm. her grandparents that give it to her <laughs> uh, because it's something that we either can't afford or don't want her to have <laughs> because yeah. yes, it's, too, exactly. um, it's too lavish. So that's her one lavish thing. But our gift giving as a family, just the three of us at home, and, and it usually is just the three of us on Christmas morning, is pretty humble. Like actually what we've mm -hmm. kind of come around to is that um is that the most important gifts we give each other are homemade. They're crafty. And that is in part because uh my kid's dad, <laughs> my partner is a a big maker of things and he's very very hard to shop for. He's one of those people who there just isn't anything in a store that feels right sure. for him. I mean, Steve, you know him. You kind of can see how right. that's true, right? He's somebody who it's so much more meaningful and fun for him to get a drawing that you made, you know, or some sort of some sort of crafty thing or some sort of odd found object that reminds you of him than to just go into a store and try to find the essence of him there. That doesn't mean, of course, that we don't shop for gifts because all that crafting involves a lot of, you know, heading out to get the materials for crafting. But actually, just yesterday, I was 
consulting with my daughter, who's now 16, about what various drawing things and glues and things like that she needs to make the stuff she needs to make for her dad, which is usually some sort of illustrated in-joke, <laughs> you know? It's her turning some sort of ongoing dad-daughter, you know, corny teasing theme into a visual representation. So that's that's usually a big fun part of, of Christmas morning for us. All right, Steve. Well, we've we've talked now about our, our generous um, gestures towards others. Let's do a round on what you selfishly want for, for Christmas mm. this year. Is there anything over the holidays that you're hoping your family or somebody else presents you with? I definitely have a cogent philosophy as a gift receiver, which is um, that thing that you'd be reluctant to buy for yourself, but actually secretly or not so secretly really, really want. And um, so this year, it, it tends to be like... This is how nerdy I am. Like books from academic presses. <laughs> I want to say gigantic flat screen TVs to watch the NFL on, which I also want. But, but you know, it's like I don't want to go into the secondary market and deprive the author of you know Young Bloomsbury, the generation that redefined love, freedom, and self expression in 1920s England. It's probably not even an academic press. That sounds like a trade book to me. But you know, that's a thirty dollar book. It should be a thirty dollar book. Um, for everyone to get properly paid, uh, we should pay thirty dollars for it. But it's just like clicking that that button doesn't really happen. But asking for it and reading it greedily um, and taking notes in the margins—that's what I'm going to do this year. What about you, Dana? Well, in response to that, let me just say that as someone whose book retails for $30, <laughs> I hope a lot of people <laughs> this holiday season get over that resistance and buy it. Yeah. Uh, am I getting some? Is there anything in particular I want? This is a tough year for me be, to say that I want something new because uh, I'm in the midst of this giant excavation of everything that I own and an attempt to make my workspace and home less cluttered by getting rid of as many things as possible. So it's hard for me to think of a durable good that I really want this year. Mm. But given the lifting of COVID restrictions, I would say that the thing I want most this year is a trip. It would make me really, really happy to oh, open a package nice. that was that was basically a, a credit for a ticket on an airline or even somebody going to the trouble of saying, you know, I've gotten these tickets, although that's going to require, of course, some consultation and advanced planning. But the big thing that I hope happens in 2023 that hasn't been happening is travel, especially travel abroad. Mm, that's a lovely, lovely idea. All right. Well, Steve, it was nice getting a little glimpse into the um, very special Metcalf family <laughs> Christmas special with you. And I hope all of our listeners have a very, very happy holiday season. You can shop great deals now on gifts at Best Buy.